Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Let's Talk Law podcast with me, your host, Wendy. If you tuned in to last week, then you'll know that we talked about the right to die in the case Cruzan v. Missouri. This week, we'll be talking about the First Amendment again. We've talked about the First Amendment a bunch of times on this podcast, so I'll only briefly mention the part of the amendment that we'll be focusing on today, which is the freedom of speech and expression. This doesn't allow the government to intervene in any way that would stop a person's free speech. The other amendment we need to talk about first is the 13th Amendment, which we haven't actually discussed yet on this podcast. The 13th Amendment says, quote-unquote, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have some duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. This is actually the amendment that abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, so make sure to keep the wording in mind as you listen to today's episode, as I'm sure you'll see just how it fits in. With the background information for the amendments we need to know finally over with, we can finally dive into this week's case, which is called Shank v. the United States. World War I began on July 28, 1914 and ended on November 11, 1918. During the wartime, a pivotal Supreme Court case was decided. Charles Schenck, one of the two defendants, was accused of conspiracy under the Espionage Act of 1917. The Espionage Act prohibited getting information, taking pictures of, or copying descriptions of any national defense-related information with the intent or reason to believe that the recorded information might be used to either injure the United States or help any foreign nation. The Espionage Act of 1917 also made it a crime and implemented criminal penalties for anyone that obstructed enlistment in the armed forces or caused defiance or disloyalty in military or naval forces. Conspiracy is constituted by the agreement of two or more people to commit an unlawful act. Shank was only one person, but having his accomplice, Elizabeth Baer, qualified both of them for conspiracy. According to Shank's testimony, he said that he was the general secretary of the Socialist Party. He had found a book from the executive committee of the party that showed a resolution that, on August 13, 1917, 15,000 leaflets should be printed and mailed to men who passed exemption boards and for distribution for the draft. Schenck had charge of the socialist headquarters from which the documents were to be sent from. On August 20th, the general secretary's report said that he, quote-unquote, obtained new leaflets from printer and started work addressing envelopes. There was also a resolution that Schenck should be allowed $125 in order to send these leaflets through the mail and that he had about fifteen or 16000 printed. You may be wondering what the issue with these flyers were. How exactly was this conspiracy, and how did Schenck violate the Espionage Act of 1917? Well, the flyers that Schenck had sent urged the men not to submit to the draft and said things like, quote-unquote, Do not submit to intimidation. Assert your rights. If you do not assert and support your rights, 
you are helping to deny or disparage rights which it is the solemn duty of all citizens and residents of the United States to retain. The flyers claim that arguments urging the men to go to war came from cunning politicians and that even silent consent to the conscription law helped support an infamous conspiracy. The flyers denied the power to send American citizens to foreign places for war and to kill others. Additionally, he urged men not to comply with the draft because the conscription was equal to involuntary servitude, which, if you remember, was outlawed by the 13th Amendment. Involuntary servitude is defined as a legal and constitutional term for a person laboring against that person's will to benefit another under some form of coercion to which it may constitute slavery. Elizabeth Baer was convicted because there was evidence that the transaction was hers. After the jury trials in which both Schenck and Baer were convicted of violating Section 3 of the 1917 Espionage Act, both of the defendants appealed to the United States Supreme Court on the basis that their conspiracy convictions contradicted the First Amendment. Their main claim was that the Espionage Act had a chilling effect on free discussion of the war effort. There was also some discussion about whether or not the evidence of the documents should be admissible in court because of the validity of the search warrant used. However, the Supreme Court would later find that the search warrant was not issued against the defendant, like Schenck, but rather the socialist headquarters, and that the documents were technically not even in the defendant's, aka Schenck's and Bear's, possession. The case was argued from January 9th to the 10th, 1919, and was finally decided on March 3rd, 1919. The vote was unanimous and went against Schenck. The nine judges were White, McKenna, Holmes, Day, Van Devanter, Pitney, McReynolds, Brandeis, and Clark. The majority opinion was written by Justice Oliver Holmes. The court found that the documents would not have been sent if Schenck did not intend to have some sort of effect and that the only clear and expected effect was to influence men to not carry out the draft. This clearly showed the intent behind Shanks and Bear's actions. The most important decision that the court came to was that courts owed the government more deference or quote-unquote leeway during wartime, even when one's constitutional rights were at stake. The justices admitted that in many places and in ordinary times that what Shank and Bear were doing would have been within each of their constitutional rights. However, because of the circumstances, things said during a time of war can be seen as a hindrance. This is also where the clear and present danger test first came from. Holmes considered that the First Amendment didn't protect speech that approaches or could create a clear and present danger. You may have heard this famous line that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater if there is no actual fire because your words would create that clear and present danger from the panic it would cause. The real question for cases where courts try to determine whether or not words present a clear and present danger depends on the circumstances of when they are used and whether or not the way they are used could create that unwanted danger. It's really just a question of proximity and degree. 
If I had to give a quick summary of this case, I would say that there was a law that made it so you couldn't try to discourage or stop people from joining the draft. Someone decided to print flyers in hopes of discouraging people from joining the draft and was charged with breaking the law I just mentioned. This person claimed that they had the freedom of speech and could therefore say whatever they wanted, but the court found that certain dire circumstances made it unconstitutional to say certain things for the fear that a person's words could cause clear and present danger such as panic. This case is so interesting because you might have heard the you can't yell fire in a crowded theater saying, but might not have known where exactly it came from. It's like hearing the Miranda warning in a TV show, except for now you know a little bit more about the history behind all of it. Before I do end out this week's case, I want to add in our little fact. This week, it's from Rockville, Maryland, and says, quote-unquote, A person may not profanely curse and swear or use obscene language upon or near any street, sidewalk, or highway within the hearing of persons passing by, upon or along such street, sidewalk, or highway. A person may not act in a disorderly manner by profanely cursing, swearing, or using obscene language. Any person who violates this section is guilty of a misdemeanor. This law kind of ties in with the case we talked about, and a fine of up to $100 can be placed on the person, so be sure to watch your language. And so, that's the end of this week's episode. This week's episode was a little bit shorter than the past couple of ones, but that's only because this case is one of the more, I guess, straightforward ones, in quotes. I guess you could say. Even though it seems pretty simple, its impact is so much bigger than you might think. If you have any feedback or suggestions, feel free to email me at letstalklawwm at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at Let's Talk Law Podcast. Remember to check back every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a new episode. Until then, I'll talk to you next week. Bye!